Welcome to Sincerely South. The Sincerely South podcast series is brought to you by the College of Education and Professional Studies at the University of South Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Gaston, and with me today as co-host is Allie Botsis. How are you, Allie? I'm great. How are you, Joe? I'm doing really well. It's great to have you here with us today. Thank you. This is your first time on the podcast, so if you don't mind for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do here at the university. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Well, I'm really excited to be here today, and I'm a Mobile native, and I tell my students, my classes, that I've just never left South. Um, so I was an undergrad here um, and a grad student as well in exercise science, and Worked in advising um, and taught part-time, and uh, in 2019, I became faculty, so getting to work alongside wonderful colleagues like Caitlin, and uh, some of the classes I teach are concepts of health and fitness, sport and fitness conditioning, and uh, taught exercise physiology and kinesiology also. Um, avid runner, dabbling in triathlon, um, so really active, and definitely excited to have this conversation about fitness and um, you know, how body composition and body image are really important conversations to have to increase, you know, individuals' active lifestyles and just overall wellness. So That's great. Yeah, you're yeah. perfect co-host for, <laughs> this, for this today. So with us today, we have Dr. Caitlin Hoff. And Caitlin, <laughs> thank you so much for agreeing to be on the program today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to to be here. You have a very good radio voice, so this is, well, I feel you. very official <laughs> right now. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to, to be here, and um, I, I guess I will in- introduce myself. Just Yeah, so please you. do. Take us back. Tell us your education journey and how you got here and what you have going on. Oh my gosh. So I will give you all the spiel that I tell my students every semester just because I, I think it's comical, but it's also a good way to get them knowing that it's okay to not know what you want to do when you are at the university level. Cause I definitely did not. Um, unlike Allie, I am not from Alabama. I'm from Columbus, Ohio. So I am a huge Ohio state fan. I'm so sorry. You can edit that out. Um, <laughs> but I was born and raised in Columbus. Um, my family is still in Columbus. My husband's family is still in Columbus. So I was very near and dear to my heart. Um, but I, grew up um, as a competitive athlete. I was a multi-sport athlete, but specifically I played tennis and I played a lot of tennis. My dad was a competitive player um, his entire life. And so he got us interested in tennis very early on in our career. And I promise this does have a point. Um, But when I first went off to college, I went to play tennis. So I went to a very small division three college up in Cleveland, Ohio, called Baldwin Wallace University. And I played tennis there all four years. Uh, We were a really competitive D3 squad. So we um, won our conference championship uh, two of the years I was there and then went to um, nationals three of the years that I was there. So the D3 national team or national championships, which which was super cool. Um, But one of the things that I noticed as an athlete, while I loved playing tennis, um, off the court, I was a very outgoing and normal, normal, quote unquote, normal person. And I would invite my friends to come watch me play tennis. And one of the things that they noticed is that when I was playing tennis, I was a completely different person. If you all know who John McEnroe is, I was the John McEnroe (laughs) of our tennis team. They would come and watch me and I'm screaming obscenities and throwing my racket and acting completely absurd. And so people would come up to me afterwards and they're just like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Um, And so it kind of became a running joke because I turned into a completely different person when I played tennis. So moral of the story here is I got to thinking about my own on court behaviors. And I was like, 
yes, I'm a competitive person and yes, I really care about this sport, but why am I acting like, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Like why, why am I having these two very, very distinct personalities when I'm playing tennis? So I was a psychology major and in our last semester of our psychology program, we have to take kind of a capstone class, if you will. And during that class, our professor made us and uh, do a research project on um, any sort of discipline in psychology that we are interested in. So come to find out, there is a whole discipline dedicated to understanding to understanding the mental side of sport, and it's called sports psychology. And so I did my project on that. And in October of my senior year, I was like, I'm gonna go to grad school to learn more about sports psychology. And my professors were just like, okay, you like, do you know the applications are due in a month? And I was like, oh yeah, it'll be fine. I'll figure it out. Get you. So I tell my students all the time, again, if you don't know what you are wanting to do, it is totally fine. I didn't know for the longest time. And then I found this discipline, but I made it my goal to go on to graduate school to figure out why I was having these significant mental differences, um, rather on and off court personalities when I played tennis. So needless to say, I graduated. I went off to Georgia Southern University to get my master's degree. So um, my master's degree is in kinesiology with a focus in sport and exercise psychology. And while I was at Georgia Southern, I had some really tremendous learning experiences. Um, we got to do a lot of work with the athletes there. So I was consulting with teams. I was consulting with individuals, teaching them mental skills, building um, and developing psychological training skills programs, which was super, super fun. Um, and I did my thesis related to eating disorders and specifically um, how coaches perceive and you know what they do when they have athletes on their teams that are experiencing eating disorder symptoms. And so I had my own experiences with an eating disorder when I was younger. And so that was a cause that was very near and dear to my heart. And it is a part of sports psychology. And so I was like, this is super cool. I can like meld two of my passions together. Um, so I know this is a super long story, but uh, in my study for my thesis, I came across a researcher that was doing exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And her name was Christy Greenleaf. And so I sought Christy out, Dr. Greenleaf. I sought her out. Um, and I was like, Hey, are you taking PhD students? And so I had no idea what a PhD program would entail, if that was really something I wanted to do, but I didn't know I wanted to keep learning. And I was really passionate about this particular study that I was doing. And so, um, Dr. Greenleaf was like, yeah, I'm looking for a student, come aboard. And so um, I moved from Statesboro, Georgia up to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I started my PhD there um, under the mentorship of Dr. Christy Greenleaf. And what was super cool is that for two years, I had dedicated all of my time to just looking at athlete populations. And then when I went to UWM, um, I switched gears and started focusing more on general populations. So people that are just like us, people that are going to the rec center or going out for a run. And so it was looking at performance enhancement in a very different capacity. Um, but more specifically, her lab focused on um, body weight and body size. And so that was really where my true passion lied and what I wanted to spend the rest of my life researching. And so um, I was there working with Dr. Greenlee for about three and a half years, finishing my PhD. 
Um, and then I ended up here. And so a lot of what I do now has not strayed away from my initial craziness that I had on the tennis court, um, but it's just kind of presented itself differently. So I'm working with performers in a very different capacity. Now I'm doing a lot more stuff related to behavior change and health promotion. Um, but it's all in the same wheelhouse. It's all about getting people to live um, the best versions of themselves, to be active, to move their bodies, because that's really important. Um, and then at the same time, I get to study things that I'm still really passionate about and still wanting to make an impact about. Um, and so that's how I ended up here. So I've been here since 2017. I have not left yet. <laughs> um, I get to work with wonderful people like Allie in our department. Really, this college that we're in is fantastic. Um, so I'm happy to do this conversation today, whatever we end up talking about. Um, but that's kind of me in a nutshell. And I know it's all over the place, but um, I've had a lot of really cool experiences. And um, that has kind of really led me to what I'm interested in researching today and the impact that I've been able to make um, in our community and with our students here. I, I always find it fascinating to to hear the journey because there's so many things that come up that might have been just a coincidence or just a random chance. And it, it takes people on a completely different path than they may have expected. I, I'm a little curious, though, about the Jekyll and Hyde, because I completely <laughs> get that. I, I used to, I played sports in, in school. And so I, you know, I, I had that strong competitive streak as well. Do you remember, was that, were you like that all the way through when you first started playing tennis or did it develop over time? It definitely developed over time. Um, when I was younger, like when I was playing in tournaments, when I was like a, a teenager and in high school, I really wasn't like that. I was very, I don't want to say quiet, but I was, I was very reserved. And so you wouldn't necessarily see those behaviors come out. And then I think it was, you know, part of me was getting in front of, you know, there's a, a ton of sports psychology theories that are at play here, but this one theory always comes to mind. It's called the social facilitation theory, but it's this idea that if you're engaging in something that you're comfortable with and something that's well-learned, when you're around other people, you tend to, to do better you know, because you're in an evaluative situation, so you try harder. And I do think that part of it stemmed from that is that I, you know, was constantly being evaluated and around other people. And so I was, my behavior really reflected that. It was almost at times I felt like I was, you know, I'm looking at this retrospectively anyway, I felt like I was putting on a show sometimes and being outlandish for really no reason in particular, because I knew it didn't serve a purpose. Like if anything, I mean, screaming every once in a while was fine. But if anything, it was just like I got off the court and I was like, why did I behave like that? Um, and so it, like I said, it became a joke on our team anyway. But I do think that a lot of those behaviors ebbed and flowed. So especially as I got into my collegiate tennis career. Um, I would say like my freshman and sophomore year, like definitely I was, was a little bit of a crazy, crazy athlete on out on the court there. And then I cooled it a little bit by my senior year because I, you know, realized how ridiculous I was being. But um, yeah, it wasn't really until retrospectively and I still participated competitively in tennis for, gosh, I mean, almost four years after college, I was still playing at a pretty competitive level. And it wasn't until then, about two years after I got out of college, still playing tennis, that I 
I had to reframe how I thought about tennis because my identity was so tied to tennis for the longest time. Like that's how I would introduce myself. I am Caitlin, the student athlete. I'm Caitlin, the tennis player, tennis, 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 this, this, this. And I didn't hate that. That was who I was. But, you know, as I got into my graduate program and then my PhD program, I wasn't a tennis player anymore. Um, I was somebody who played tennis, you know, recreationally. I did play club tennis at Georgia Southern and which was hysterical because I was basically the mom traveling around with all these (laughs) 18 and 19 year old kids to these tournaments. And, you know, that's what they would call me or they would call me professor because I was a graduate teaching assistant at the time. Um, But, you know, I had to I felt like I was trying to keep myself in check then because I realized that this wasn't, you know, I had to kind of disassociate from that identity a little bit. And that is a big part of sports psychology as well as trying to figure out, you know, what to do with your identity when you transition out of sports. And then you have people, you know, like Allie, for example, I know that she got into competitive running, um, not recently, but it's been a couple years now and you, you figure out new identities to take on. And so I'm not Caitlin, the athlete anymore, but I am Caitlin, the professional that still gets to help athletes, which is super cool. Yeah, that's a very different mindset, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's different, different characteristics you have to take on. Um, but what's really great about the discipline that I'm involved in anyway, thinking about sport and performance psychology is that a lot of these things are really generalizable to everything that we do. So a lot of the skills that I learned as an athlete, I still get to apply in the classroom. My students can take and use these skills in their everyday lives. We always talk about some of these techniques in relation to going to apply for your dream job or going to apply for graduate school or interviewing for your dream job. Um, All of these things still apply in other realms, which is really nice. Um, But it is, it's just, it's taking on, it's interpreting um, that identity in a different way now. Yeah, I think that's such an important conversation. Um, And when I was in undergrad, I worked as a tutor for student athletes. and, and now as I look back and I'm a teacher, you know, you can see how, you know, sometimes it's hard as a student athlete. I wasn't a student athlete personally, but how do those skills translate like to the classroom or, you know, cause you are so wrapped in that identity. And so what were some things, like, did you go through any challenges as you made that switch? Like, and do you have any tips? Like if there's a student athlete oh, listening man. to this podcast, like, <laughs> you know, do you have any suggestions? Yeah, great question. Yeah. I think a lot of the challenges that you experience um, just have to do with, recognizing and being aware that that is part of who you are, but it's not all of you. Like we always tell athletes to, um, you know, realize that you're part of something bigger. Like this is only one piece of you. And that's particularly true for student athletes. Like you, you are a student athlete, you're an athlete, but you're also a student, but you're also a ton of other things. Um, and this conversation has come up quite frequently with, we have a lot of athletes engaging in like athlete activism, for example. And so it's letting athletes know that, you know, you can be all of these things. You can be an athlete, you can be a student, you can be an activist. There are a lot of different identities that you can engage in. You're not just this one dimensional thing. And I think that's the biggest tip that I have is recognizing that it's okay. And then finding people that are supportive and allowing you to experience those different identities and be a part of these different pieces, because we aren't just like, like I said, these one dimensional things 
for me, transitioning out of sport and into a different identity, I felt very lucky because I went right from being a collegiate athlete to working with collegiate athletes. And so those experiences that I had were still very fresh in my mind. Um, that is what I lived and breathed for so many years. And so when I had athletes come to me and say, I need help with this, this, and this, I'm like, I relate to you. It might be a completely different sport, but I totally relate to the experience that you're having and the feelings that you're having. Um, and now being quite removed from those days. I mean, you know, I graduated college and I'm not going to date myself, but 2011. So being about 10 years or so removed from that, um, the things that my students now that they're experiencing still are very similar things. And so it's not as fresh in my mind, but it's still like, I remember being in that and it's scary and it's hard to come up with an identity. Some, you don't know where the transition to a lot of times. So I felt lucky that I had a place to transition to and that was easy for me, but um, losing your identity can be a really scary thing for some athletes. Um, and definitely something that you want to find the right support system for. Definitely. Yeah, I would I would imagine that could be that could be tricky for some students. Well, we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back, let's jump into some of the research that you've been doing. All right. Sounds we'll great. be right back. At the University of South Alabama's College of Education and Professional Studies, our faculty and students are focused on critical issues that we have the power to change, affect, and shape. Together, we are catalysts for healing and growth, guarding our region's health and well-being. We are stretching ourselves through research into human movement, healthy living, and physical activity. We are adventurous. We are leaders. We are competitors. We are supporters. We are mentors. We are educators. We are community builders. We are collaborative educators. We are. We are. We are. We are. We are. We are. We are South. Welcome back. We're here today with Dr. Caitlin Hoff from the University of South Alabama, and sitting with me as co-host is Ali Batsis. And Caitlin, we were going to jump into your research. What kinds of things have you been researching recently? Oh, so many things. Um, I, again, I feel like this keeps coming back up, but I feel very lucky to be in the position that I'm in when I came to South a lot of people were interested in doing research related to physical activity. And that's one of the things that I know how to talk about. Um, so when I first started here, obviously I'm in the kinesiology, health kinesiology and sport department. And so we talk physical activity all the time, but I connected with somebody in the nursing program and they were looking at physical activity related to some of their nursing students, just rates of physical activity, lack of physical activity more likely. Um, and so I jumped on their research team the first year I was here. And honestly, I've been working with them ever since I've been here. So a lot of the research that I've been working on um, as of late is with their nursing students. So specifically looking at nursing student um, health and well-being, so physical and mental health specifically. And I've gotten to collaborate with a lot of people, not just in nursing, but people in College of Ed as well. So Ryan McDermott, for example, he's on our research team as well. But we've been able to submit a lot of grants and been able to do some really cool studies related to how we can help nursing students develop better um, physical and health 
well, really physical health behaviors. So things related to physical activity, nutrition, and engage in better mental health practices. We know that nursing students have a lot of burnout. Nurses in general have a lot of burnout. So we're trying to figure out where um, during their nursing program, we might be able to best intervene to help get rid of some of that burnout, take away some of that stress. And we kind of narrowed that down to a lot of the coping behaviors that they engage in. Um, and then also some of their more physical and mental behaviors that they engage in, like lack of physical activity, bad nutrition, things like that. So trying to figure out where we can best intervene to help, um, create better practices for them. It's been a challenge. I mean, any sort of curriculum changes that you want to make are very difficult, but we've come up with a lot of really, um, We've had a lot of results that have been positive in terms of us needing to make these changes. And then we've also found out that our nurses are in a lot more health than we first thought anyway. So it's a population of students that I never thought I would be working with, but here I am, um, but doing a lot of really meaningful research in that area. So I've done a lot of stuff with that. Um, but another thing that I have done with our nursing, our college of nursing, is that there's another professor over there. Her name is Dr. Sharon Free, and she is a wonderful person. Um, and I've done a lot of work with her, but one of her interests is in weight bias. And so that is one of the things that I did um, a lot during my PhD program. So my mentor during my PhD program who I mentioned, Christy Greenleaf, that is kind of her bread and butter research area is weight bias and weight stigma. Um, so I've done a lot of work in that area as well. We've done it in relation to nursing, um, nursing students, graduate nursing students specifically, um, looking at how preceptors um, engage in weight bias commentary and weight bias practices. And so just raising awareness about why this is an issue. And then Outside of the College of Nursing, I've continued to do work with um, my uh, PhD mentor, Christy Greenleaf, um, with some other weight bias related things, specifically related to like a gym setting um, and also related to exercise apparel. And so just knowing that a lot of those weight bias practices do exist. And that's been really, um, again, meaningful research to me because one of the things that we want to do as health promotion professionals is to get as many people active as possible. We know that physical activity is a great thing that you can do for your mind and your body, but we also know that physical activity activity can be really intimidating. There's a lot of societal ideals that we're expected to meet when we're engaging in physical activity. And a lot of physical activity spaces are not very inclusive in a lot of different ways. So a lot of the research that I do in the weight bias realm does have to do with how do we make spaces more inclusive and how can we um, eliminate weight bias from those settings. So my research is all over the place, but it's all stuff, you know, that again, makes a, a meaningful contribution, not only to our students, but people in the general population. Well, in reading through some of the articles that you shared with me ahead of this podcast, really kind of opened my eyes to some of that, especially with the, the weight bias, uh, just in thinking about environments that I've been in. And it really made sense, like in a gym or even at the doctor's office or in so many other places where maybe they're not particularly accommodating uh, to those with, with more weight. But you mentioned two different things. You said weight bias and weight stigma. And I was wondering if you could 
Talk a little bit about that. What's the difference between those two? Yeah, so really weight bias is, weight bias falls in lines with a lot of those other types of biases that we have. So you think about classism, sexism, racism, things like that. Weight bias is along the same lines is that it's still an acceptable form of discrimination that we have, um, and, but it's basically where you are biased against somebody because of their body weight um, or their body shape and size. And so weight stigma is then engaging in those stigmatizing practices where you might use some microaggressions towards that individual, whether you're engaging in some verbal or some physical form of discrimination towards them. So there, it's kind of like when you have, when you engage in bias, that does lead to stigmatizing behavior. So it's kind of like one follows the other essentially. But the underlying theme here is that we are having this bias towards an individual because of their body weight because of their body size. And it does create spaces that become very exclusive. It creates practices that are very exclusive. And the thing is, is that it doesn't just happen in gym settings. Um, it happens a lot in workplaces. It happens a lot in healthcare settings. So there is a continual cycle of people of larger body sizes not wanting to go to the doctor because they are stigmatized there, which is where that research with the nursing school comes in. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things that I'm passionate about is, first of all, educating people that this does happen. It is a form of discrimination um, and it does happen at the it's it's an implicit bias and sometimes it's an explicit bias. So just thinking about somebody's body weight or shape, even if you don't say anything, that's still an implicit bias that people hold. And a lot of people aren't aware that they have this implicit bias. So that's one of the things that I do teach in all of my classes here at South. We all, we spend some time talking about weight and weight bias and the students become very much aware that these practices that they might be engaging in these practices, um, they don't like when they become aware of these things. But the reality is, is that a lot of healthcare professionals, even though you are in a health, um, a healthcare setting, whether you're a kinesiology professional, nursing, whatever it might be, we do tend to engage in these weight bias practices and it can be problematic for the people we're working with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a conversation we've had quite a bit, mm-hmm. you know, just like in our classes, you know, how we can, a reframe, I think, how people view what fitness is, you know, that it's not like what we talked about even before, you know, uh, we started recording, like, it's not the six pack abs or the chiseled features. It's like, how is someone functioning? You know, like, how is your how are your senses? I tell my students, can you see well? Can you hear well? You know, what is your mental status? Right? It's, you can't just look at someone and make those judgment calls. Um, And it's considering like, what are those barriers? Right? What is keeping someone from being active? And how can we um, reframe those perspectives, you know, and, and have a larger conversation. Yeah. A lot of times the ways to that the medical profession, um, goes about fixing problems is by suggesting that weight loss needs to happen. And that's not always the, the easiest way to solve a lot of problems associated with weight. Um, and where we're passionate about is just getting people active and moving body, moving your body in a way that is meaningful and joyful. And there's a lot of health benefits that are great, um, are a lot of really good health outcomes associated with just being physically active, regardless of your body weight and size. And so that's kind of our, our, you know, what we want to share with our students is that you don't have to be this certain figure, look this particular way that society tells you to look, as long as you're engaging in some of these practices that are, you know, health supporting behaviors like physical activity. Um, But that message gets very skewed a lot of times. And then we do see a lot of this weight bias occur in our society. There was a, a word that 
that came up in, in some of the research that I had read, and it was embodiment. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote the definition down just so I would remember it, but it says a meaningful experience and consequence of physical activity, exercise, and sports engagement. So it's it's not trying to reach some ideal. It's just having that experience and then what comes along with that from just engaging in something physically active, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. And subjective experiences are so important. And, you know, when I'm teaching my students about how to, you know, work with performers, for example, there's two big things that you want to pay attention to. You have to pay attention to the person you're working with and you have to pay attention to the situation that they're in. But the third piece that's really, really important is understanding their lived experience. And so the way that I experience going over to the rec center is going to be very different than the way that somebody who's never been in the rec center before is going to experience that. The way you run a race is going to be very different than the way that I run a race and what that means for me. And so embodiment is tied very closely into, you know, engaging in mindful experiences where you're present, you're accepting things and taking things as they are, you're living in the moment, um, and you're also engaging in some gratitude. And so what I like to tell my students is that when you're working with people, you know, think about functional fitness. I mean, think about what this activity is doing for the functionality of your body and not necessarily your appearance. You don't need to go to the gym to think about, you know, am I fitting into what Instagram says I should be looking like? I'm going to the gym because I'm thankful that I can move my body today because a lot of people don't have that privilege. They're not able to do that. So embodiment can be really important for getting people to engage mindfully in physical activity um, and really understand physical activity for, for what it is. It should be an experience that is joyful for you, should provide meaning for you. And those experiences are going to be interpreted differently by people depending on um, a, a multitude of experiences that they've had. There, there was something, and I didn't write it down. I should have written it down, and maybe you can talk about this, Allie. But this idea of creating a uh, a social media uh, persona for health mm-hmm. was there was something that came up in the the research about that. Yeah, we did had a. Um, I think some of your research was related to uh, in terms of just how we can make um, how well so social media's impact on like how we view fitness or activity. Um, and again, it not fitting inside a, a gym setting or a box. Um, sometimes I tell something I tell my students is asking like an example of a cardiorespiratory exercise. Everyone always says running, you know, cause that's what they see, but how can we make something more open and more broad? Um, and that's the more accepting, like, so what are your takes on the social media component? And yeah, point? my, my whole dissertation was on this exact thing. It was all about how people create, you know, quote unquote exercise or identities. And if that happens, um, you know, when I went to do my dissertation, social media was really taking off. Um, Instagram was becoming huge. Everybody was posting their highlight reel and making themselves look glamorous in every setting that they did. And one of the ways that I noticed it was, you know, like specifically on Instagram, I have a lot of friends who are fitness junkies, if you will, doing a lot of different fitness activities and everybody would post themselves at the gym or looking in this certain way or talking about fitness. And so I became really curious, like, do people do this? Do they put on a certain persona online to capture, um, 
you know, this exerciser identity, they want to present themselves as an exerciser. And there is a lot of research that indicates that, yes, people do this. People associate exercise and being an exerciser with a lot of really prominent qualities. So people that are dependable, people that are loyal, people that are going to get stuff done, they're hardworking, they're disciplined. And so I want to identify myself as an exerciser because I also want people to think those same things of me. And so, yes, I am willing to put on a persona that I am doing X, Y, and Z exercises and I'm engaging in these activities because then people are going to think about me in that light. And so we do see a lot of people posting on social media in that regard. And one of the really interesting things that I found from the participants, I did some qualitative interviewing with them, was that a lot of these participants, I mean, oh my gosh, some of the things that you would hear just would break your heart. Posting pictures and not getting a certain number of likes, and so you're taking the picture down. So this one person, if I got three likes on the picture and nobody commented, I deleted the post, even though it was me talking about an achievement that I just had. Um, I had one participant talk about how she had two social media accounts, one social media account that was just for like her friends and families where she would post pictures of her cat and one that she made public that anyone could see where she posted all of her fitness related material because she's like, well, I don't necessarily want my friends and family seeing me doing a, a selfie and a bikini in the mirror. And so it was kind of just like why the dichotomy between why you need to have these two personalities is really interesting to me. And it continues to be interesting. Um, but the way that social media has really pushed us into thinking that we need to present ourselves in a certain way because of these societal ideals that's created is crazy. Um, but not only that is a lot of these societal ideals that are being pushed on social media are completely unattainable and unrealistic. And this again, ties back into a lot of that you know, idea behind making spaces inclusive for people of all body shapes and sizes, where you don't have to be afraid to go to the gym because you look a certain way. You know, society is telling you that you shouldn't look this way, but you do. And so is that going to keep you from engaging in these certain behaviors? And it shouldn't, you know, if this behavior makes you happy, if it brings you joy, that's what you should be doing. Um, but a lot of people are backing away from engaging in things like exercise because they fear being evaluated negatively. They fear being made fun of. Um, and that can be really problematic for engaging in some of these health supporting behaviors. Yeah. I love how you said about the joy. I think it's finding that intrinsic motivation and like drive. And it reminds me of the ac an activity you shared with me, the mindfulness hike. Yeah. And I can't remember who you got that one from one of your colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, but the whole point of the hike is I tell my students, like, like I always bring up the running example, because it's like the go-to aerobic exercise. I'm like, if you don't like to run, like, don't run like yeah, other <laughs> things you can do. Right. I mean, I like to run, but I didn't like to run until someone encouraged me and I signed up for a race and that was it. I found my people like that's kind of why I like to run, but, but like find what you like to do, but like, you know, just find the intrinsic enjoyment and, and love. And like the whole point of the mindfulness hike is for a 30 minute walk. You have different prompts that you focus on, like what you're grateful for, um, the role models in your life, like yeah, things that make you strong, that make you strong or happy. And like, you know, it's not the likes and it's not the posts and, you know, the uh, outside um, acknowledgments. It's your personal journey. Um, and I think that's really important. And kind of what social media takes away oftentimes is the personal intrinsic aspect of being active and, and pursuing those activities. Yeah. Social media has been really great for creating communities mm -hmm. where you can find your people. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, it is a very extrinsically motivating 
type of activity that you engage in because you are posting these things to get some sort of external reward, whether it's likes, whether it's comments, whether it's followers, whatever it might be. And that really does influence why you choose to exercise, which is what I found during my dissertation is that people were actively going to the gym, actively competing in races because they specifically wanted people to acknowledge that they had did they have done this particular thing. I ran this marathon because I knew that I could post it on social media and people were going to comment on it. Mm-hmm. That's not the way that we want to be engaging in physical activity. We want to do it because, well, you know what? I'm thankful that I can move my body. I went out for a run yesterday. Um, my, my friend, the same colleague that gave me the mindfulness hike, shout out to Sarah Powell. She's awesome. Um, I was in a meeting with her and she ended the meeting early and I was like, oh, you gave me 30 extra minutes. And so I went out for a run and I, the entire time was just thankful that today I was able to move my body and I was able to engage in some self-care. Um, I didn't post it on social media. I didn't post it all over the place that I went and did this, but it, you know, it's kind of the idea that we want people engaging in activities because they're good for you. They make you feel good. They have meaning for you. Um, but you don't need to add everything to your highlight reel because that highlight reel can be very, very pressure inducing anxiety producing elicits a lot of negative comparison because you're comparing yourself not only to your friends, but to people that are not your friends, but you're following anyway. Um, and so that's where we see a lot of discrepancy with, with body ideals and body image that can be really problematic and lead down the path to some of this disordered eating and eating disordered behavior, um, which we're seeing now a lot in our general population, but also with, with athletes. You know, you said something that that really struck me. And it was thinking about, for example, running probably, and I have run off and on uh, most of my life, but a lot of it, I guess my mindset had been, it was a means to an end by running. It, it's going to get me in better shape. It's going to tone me up and not really focusing on the fact that I just like to run, mm-hmm. that I just enjoy it, you know? And so that's a completely different mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I like that idea of the the mindfulness walk or the, or those kinds of things, because that really gets to where I think the shift would, would have to happen because you, you made the comment that for some students thinking about uh, weight bias, they didn't really want to hear it because as you expose them to it, they realized that maybe they had that, but how else are we going to change until we become aware of it? And I think that's what's so powerful about what you two are doing is creating that awareness because I'm not really sure how else you make the change. Yeah. Awareness is huge. Confronting students with these things is huge. Um, there's a really great uh, initiative called Health at Every Size. And one of their key components is intuitive exercise. And it is this idea that you you know, you're moving your body because you enjoy doing it and you find a joyful activity for you to do. And so, like you said, I'm, I'm running cause I enjoy running. And instead of, you know, saying that, well, I have to go out and I have to run exactly 3.1 miles or it doesn't count. Well, no run for as long as your body says that it wants to run for, you know, pay attention to those intuitive cues and engage in activity for the sake of engaging and your body will tell you when it's ready to stop and when it's tired and when the activity is over and your emotions will tell you that too. But yeah, a lot of times we do see people go to the gym. I'm guilty of this too. And you know, you get on the treadmill, you get on the elliptical, you're lifting weights and I have to do X amount of reps. I need to burn X amount of calories. And then when that's done, I'm satisfied. 
Um, and it's really hard to sometimes engage in this intuitive exercise where we're really just doing this because it's fun for me and because I enjoy doing it and because it allows me to be at the people that I enjoy being with. I know Allie, for example, does a lot of group runs. And so, and she might be faster or slower than a lot of the people that she runs with, but she does it because she likes being with these people. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the activity for the sake of doing it. And that message especially and unfortunately in the kinesiology world doesn't get put out there a lot of times. We're very focused on the physiology of exercise and the body movements. And um, a lot of times we forget that exercise is medicine and exercise is a prescription we can give people. There is a whole movement with ACSM, the American College of Sports Medicine, that is exercise is medicine, asking doctors to prescribe exercise as a treatment regimen for people because it can have a lot of really good physical and mental health benefits if you engage in it on a regular basis. It doesn't mean that you have to do it for exactly 30 minutes, X, Y, and Z times, but what it means is that you're getting out and you're moving your body in a way that's purposeful for you and you're enjoying it. Um, and I really think that that's important, but it's not something that we do very often, especially with talking to our students here, you know, you bring up these concepts in class and it's just like mind blown. Like I never, you know, thought that, you know, this is something I should be telling somebody, but sometimes that is the best medicine to treat somebody is allowing them to engage in exercise that's beneficial for their body. Because people of varying body shapes and sizes and types are going to experience exercise differently and running might not be comfortable for everybody. For example, I do not like to swim. I like to swim for fun. If you were to ask me to do a triathlon, that's why I won't do one. <laughs> Swimming is not for me. I've done a duathlon before. Allie is working on it. I'm but working uh, on it. <laughs> <laughs> she has tried several times, but I don't like, I don't like training for in a swimming pool. I get dizzy doing the laps and that to me is not enjoyable. So why do I do it? Um, on the other hand, it is going to push me out of my comfort zone, which is also a really great thing that you want people to do. So maybe one day I will get there. It is recorded. <laughs> and I said it. Um, but you know, you want, to, you want students to be thinking about how can I best serve my client that I'm working with and yeah, sometimes those messages don't come out in the forefront in our practices in the kinesiology world. And that's something that I think is shifting and changing. It's been very science-based, hard science-based. And so we do need to bring in some of these psychosocial factors into talking about things like exercise experiences, because that makes it a more holistic picture. And um, you know, we could go down a rabbit hole of talking about why physical activity is related to social justice and all of these sorts of things as well. But if you don't take into account people's behaviors and their emotions and their mindset, the psychology behind exercise, you're not really going to get anywhere in terms of changing somebody's behavior. And that's kind of the, the big takeaway that I have in a lot of my classes. And with my research is that the psychology piece of it is important and it's almost essential to getting those people to engage in behaviors consistently in a sustainable way. This has been a fascinating conversation. I, I have really enjoyed I this. So. I, and I feel like this is, this would really be kind of like part one because there, there's so much more that we could, that we could get into, but hear that he hey, liked us okay. enough. Okay. Come back. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank you both so much for agreeing to be yeah, on the podcast. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah. I know, again, this is a conversation that Allie and I have a lot. These are personal experiences that we have had in our past years and in recent times. Um, 
So, and it's something that's really relatable for really the, the general population. And I think that that's really, I mean, we would love to continue to have yeah. this conversation whenever you want yeah, to. Let us know. <laughs> yes. Well, and thank you both so much for coming. And for those of you listening today, as long as we keep talking to each other, we'll make it together through this thing called life. Sincerely, South. The Sincerely South podcast series is brought to you by the University of South Alabama College of Education and Professional Studies. Follow the college Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages at USACEPS for the latest news. The podcast episodes are engineered and directed by Dr. Joe Gaston. Our executive producer is Dr. Trace DeFurek. Guests on the podcast are expressing personal opinions for informational purposes only and are not necessarily acting as representatives for the university or for their places of employment. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.